you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. We're looking at the life and ministry of Elijah. And we didn't have Discovery Hour last week, and so we're, we're kind of continuing the lesson from last week. And I just want to, at the beginning here, just read through chapter 19. We'll read and then teach and teach and then read and work our, thre- our way through verses 1 through 18. And two weeks ago when we met, we asked the question, what happens when enough is enough? What happens when you have had it up to here? When you have served the Lord and expectations have not been fulfilled, disappointment has come, God seems to have let you down, and your reaction is, I'm done. I've had it. I'm going to quit. Enough is enough. And what we saw two weeks ago was this in chapter 19. Unfulfilled expectations lead to unexpected depression and disobedience. When we expect God to perform and to meet our needs and He doesn't come through, it can often lead to a depression and to a disobedience. So let's look at it. Here's his expectations, and you'll see it in your notes. Ahab, the apostate king, fails to lead. Elijah had such high hopes for him. Look at verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So we're coming off of chapter 18. We're coming off the fire coming down from Carmel, the slaughter of the 450 prophets of Baal, the prayer for rain to come after three and a half years of drought. He has high hopes and weak apostate Ahab does what weak apostate Ahab does. He follows who's ever in charge. And now Jezebel's in charge, and he kind of rats him out. Second thing that he disappoints him is Jezebel, the pagan queen, refuses to repent. Even though Ahab was a lousy witness, he did say all that God had done, all that had happened. And yet, Jezebel, knowing that her prophets had been killed, knowing that God had brought fire from heaven, knowing that God controlled rain and had brought drought for three and a half years, she doesn't repent. She reacts aggressively. Look at verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And so he, she sends a messenger and swears an oath. 24 hours from now, you're going to be dead like you killed my prophets. And we think, why did, why did she wait 24 hours if, if Elijah was right there at the gate? Well, I say it's because God is sovereign and sin is stupid and pride is foolish, and Jezebel just thought, I've got time, I'm in control, and I'll wait. But instead, what happens? Number three, Elijah, the loyal prophet, flees in fear. He runs fearfully. And I guess I was informed, there's basically a fight-or-flight response. Am I getting this right? You were helping me out with this. Fight-or-flight. And instead of fighting, this mighty prophet of God flees, and he flees in fear. Look at verse 3. And he was afraid, and arose, and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba. 
that's about 100 miles away, basically from here to Manhattan, Kansas, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He runs in the opposite direction, as far south to the very limits of the promised land, and then he says to his servant, you can stay here on the edge of Israel. I'm going into the wilderness. I am so discouraged. I'm quitting. I'm no longer, I no longer want to be a prophet of God. Look at verse 3. He said he left his servant there. His emotion is fear. His reaction is to run. His motivation is more than fear. He's more than depressed. He's being, diso- he's being disobedient. He's running away from God. But Elijah's not done running. Look at verse 4. But he himself went into a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a juniper tree. So now he's out in the wilderness. So he's 100 miles away. Now he's went one day deeper into the wilderness, and he's in a place where there's no people. It's a place that is considered God-forsaken, and he gets under one little bush that provides a little bit of shade, and the roots of this bush provide a little bit of, of food, and he basically just sits down to have a pity party. Look at the rest of verse 4. Then he requested for himself that he might die, and said, and here's the key words, it is enough. It is enough. In Hebrew, that is the first word, and it is one word. And basically, you've said it, I've said it, enough. I'm done. I've had it up to here. And he says, Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down, and he slept under that juniper tree. And so there he is. He's lamenting. In regard to life, he's saying, Enough. With regard to death, he's saying, Now, I want it to end, which is really radical, radical prayer. And with regard to others, he's, look, I'm no better. And I think that's important because we're going to move into this here in the next section. Basically, Elijah had a Messiah complex. Elijah thought he was better than everyone. Elijah thought that he alone was going to turn Israel back to God. And when it didn't happen, he's devastated. And so there he is. He says, I've had enough. And so the good news on this is Elijah was a human being just like us. And here's what you want to realize. We, we kind of ended with this. Too often we expect the Lord to do it our way on our timetable and to do it all through us. Have you ever been there? We expect the Lord to do it our way on our timetable and to do it all through us. And when you have that expectation of God and He doesn't come through, you're going to get discouraged. You may even get depressed and more than likely, you'll end up disobeying the Lord. So let's ask this question here. Let me give you eight reasons why I think this is more than just depression, okay? What's it mean when Elijah said enough is enough? Let me give this to you. here, And, and we're not going to go into this deep, but... A lot of people are, a lot of students of Elijah, they're not sure what's going on here. Some treat this whole lesson like it's a lesson on depression. And depression is a serious topic. It's a topic we need to talk about. But that's not all that's going on here. Elijah is more than depressed. 
more than discouraged. He's acting in unbelief, and he's running from God. So let's look at eight reasons why this is more than a case study of depression. Number one, there's no word from God from the Lord to run or hide. In verse 3, this is the first time we see Elijah doing anything without the word of the Lord first telling him to do it. And so that right there tells you this isn't just a depression thing. This is a disobedience thing. Number two, there's no prayer to the Lord. You know, it's one thing to be discouraged. It's one thing to be depressed. But to not even ask God's wisdom or guidance. There's no prayer to the Lord. And we've already seen. In fact, we took two lessons to talk about Elijah's prayer life. This was a man who in in the New Testament is known to be a man of prayer. James chapter 5, and yet no prayer. Number three, there's no desire to live, just to die. There's no desire to live. Now, granted, that is an expression of depression. That's often very common if you're depressed. But we saw that before that depression, there's no word, there's no obedience, and there's no prayer. Number four, Elijah's passive obedience to eat and drink and then immediately sleep. Twice in this passage, the Lord will feed Elijah supernaturally by, an, by the angel of the Lord. And he, he's sleeping there and the angel of the Lord comes and touches him and says, Arise and eat. And the text says, he got up, he ate, and he went back to sleep. He doesn't say, oh, thank you, Lord. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't respond to the Lord. And again, this is very common in depression as well, and yet there's more to it than that. Number four, Elijah's passive obedience to eat and drink and then sleep. He, he's just doing what he's told. In fact, he's acting very much like Ahab. Ahab's this way. Whatever someone tells him to do, he does it. But it's passive obedience. Okay, let's look at, let's read a little farther in verse 4. He says, it's enough. Verse 5, he laid down and slept under the tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, arise and eat. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank And lay down again. So here you are in this desert. An angel touches you. And there is not just manna from heaven. I mean, there's a bread that's like been baked by human hands. But it's not human. And there's a jar of water that shows up in the desert. I find it interesting. We see again, the Lord is providentially providing. But he provides in supernatural and natural ways, right? Because in this story... He's provided for him in the wilderness before, and what did God use the first time? Ravens, right? And they brought food. So that was natural, but it was supernatural. The second time he provided for him was through the Baal-worshipping widow, right there in the territory of Jezebel. Again, natural supply, and yet it was supernatural because there was just this much Uh, flour, this much oil, and yet every day they would use it up, and the next day there would be just enough for the next day. So what's fascinating here 
is God supernaturally now, not using the created world, ravens, not using an unsaved widow, a human being, but using the angel of the Lord and yet providing a provision that was like baked with human hands. Are you, you see, God providentially, the supernatural and the natural. So don't, listen, don't take for granted your daily bread. That is supernaturally provided by the Lord. And then when God does something supernatural, don't always expect it to have angel dust flying around it, okay? It can be very natural in the way He provides. But here's what this guy does. He wakes up in the middle of a wilderness with this nice warm bread and a jar of water, eats, and what's he do? Goes back to sleep. I mean, you know... Even you as parents, what would you say to your kids? What would you say, Terry? Say thank you. Yes, please acknowledge this. But what does he do? No, he just passively obeys. He goes back to sleep. Look, and God is so gracious as we're going to see. God does it again for him a second time because the guy needed to sleep. And so he sleeps. Notice. So he arose. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 7, so he ate, or verse 6, he ate, drank, and laid down again. Verse 7, the angel Lord came a second time. Now we know it's not just an angel, it's the angel of the Lord. And we have done a study of that before in our class. The angel of the Lord, I am convinced in the Old Testament, is the pre-incarnate person of Jesus Christ. And the angel of the Lord is associated with the Lord and acknowledged even as God in the Old Testament. This is the Son of God, pre-incarnate body, coming. And the angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him again, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, the mountain where the covenant was given, revealed to Moses, the mountain where Israel broke the covenant, the mountain where God granted forgiveness and a second chance to the people of Israel. And then, so let's, 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 so well, let's keep going. Verse 9, then he came there to a cave. And in the Hebrew, it says, he came there to the cave. And we don't know for sure, but I'm pretty convinced in light of that definite article, more than likely, this is the cave where God put Moses in the cleft of the rock when his glory passed by. So he has not only gone back to Mount Sinai, he has gone to the cave. The cave where God revealed his glory to Moses and where Moses, as the mediator of the covenant, had met with God. And notice what happens. Then he came there and he lodged there. And behold, now for the first time, the word of the Lord comes to him. For the first time, he gets the word of the Lord. And look at what he says. And he, the Lord, said to him. What's he, look at what he says. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? So if this guy was in the will of God, if this was merely a depression, I don't think he would have said that. He's cared for his needs, but he's gone beyond that. He's gone beyond that to actually saying, what are you doing here? 
And then notice how he responds. Here's Elijah's response, verse 10. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Basically, he says, I'm here to tell you, I'm the only one you've got, and I'm quitting. I've had enough. I've been zealous. And underneath, he's saying, look, they haven't listened. But underneath that, what is he implying to God? What's the implication? Here's God's prophet. What's the implication? Yeah, God hasn't come through either. You know, hey, I was up there doing your will, and they're not listening, and I'm here back talking to you, and I'm basically saying, look, you've let me down, I'm quitting. He's trying to quit being a prophet. That's not going to go well. Okay, you don't choose to be a prophet, God chooses you, and you don't quit being a prophet until God lets you go. So notice, uh, back here to... to, What we're saying, number five, the Lord's repeated question. We're going to see here in verses seven through nine that the Lord asked him the same question two times. What are you doing here? Now, if you ask someone the same question two times, what's that imply? Yeah, that you shouldn't be here. What are you doing here? This is not where I want. Where should Elijah be? Up north in Samaria. Dealing with Jezebel, right? And he says, what are you doing here? So let's look at verses 7 through 9. Well, we read those. Okay, let's keep going. Number, number 6, Elijah's unchanging response. He asks him twice, and Elijah doesn't change his response. Now, parents, what happens when you ask your kids something, and you want a, uh, the truth... You know, what are you doing here? And they don't, they don't answer the right way. You ask them a second time, and they, they say the same thing that they said the first time. What's going on? Disobedience. Disobedience. That's what's going on. He's focused on me. He's like, I don't care what you want, God. I'm telling you how the situation really is. Because apparently, you need to be informed. All right? Now, I know you guys are looking at me like, poor Elijah, but do you not see ourselves in this? Okay, can you see ourselves? Okay, let's keep going. Verse 10, he said, look, I've been zealous. We read that, and they take it away. Verse 11, so he said, here's what the Lord says to that. Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord. So again, Yahweh, the I am God, the covenant God. Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. Same word in Exodus when God put Moses in the cleft of the rock and his glory passed by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking it in pieces and the rocks before the Lord. So this mighty wind comes and it's like tearing the mountain and crushing the rock. But notice... But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind came an earthquake. Now the, light, the earth is just shaking. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire 
A fire from heaven. Remember, he had just called down fire from heaven. Fire came. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. We really don't know how to translate this word. Some say a a, a sound of silence. Uh, a, a still, small voice is probably still the best translation from the King James. A still, small voice. Verse 13. And it came about when Elijah heard it. Not the, not the mighty wind, not the earthquake, not the fire. But when he heard the voice, the still, silent, whispering voice of the Lord... He wrapped his face in a mantle, and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Notice, he was supposed to go out there before all this, and he had, he had been what? Disobedient. But now, when he hears, finally, even through all the great earthquake, the wind and the fire, he hears God's word, and now he responds in obedience And he went out and he wrapped his face in his mantle. Why? Because he knows he's about to see the glory of God and you can't look at God in the face. And he went out and he stood at the entrance and behold. So again, we've seen behold twice now. First, when the glory passed by in verse 11. Now in verse 13, a voice came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Do you see this? What are you? Do I have your attention yet? What are you doing here, Elijah? And look at what Elijah. Now, wouldn't you expect a different answer at this point? Wouldn't you expect a different answer? And he says, word for word, the same thing. This isn't just depression. This is a stubborn disobedience with that depression, okay? And notice what he says. Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone have left, and they seek my life to take it away. Wow. Let's let's, Let's go back. So the Lord repeated the question twice. Elijah gives an unchanging response, number six. Number seven, the Lord corrects his Messiah complex. I would put forth to you that he has a Messiah complex. A Messiah complex, I'm not trying to get psychological, I'm just saying we all know what that means. It means, I am here to save the day. We do this as parents. I am here to save the day. We do this as spouses. I am here to save our marriage. We do this as providers. I am here to provide and to fix everything that's wrong in our family. It's a Messiah complex. And a Messiah complex says, I alone can do it, and I can do it without anybody's help. And he corrects that. How does he do it? Look at verses 15 through 18. The Lord said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of of Damascus, and when you have ride, you shall anoint Hazael king over a ram, which was an enemy, an enemy of Samaria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, 
You shall anoint king over Israel. I will replace Ahab and Jezebel. And I want you to anoint Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of abel Melola. I'm going to rush through that. You shall anoint as prophet in your place. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, it isn't all about you, Elijah. Okay, you want to quit? Well, first of all, you can't quit because I've called you to be a prophet. Second of all, you're, I'm going to show you that it's not just you that's going to do it. I'm going to use an unsaved king to punish Samaria. I'm going to replace Ahab with Jehu, who's going to punish Ahab and his family. And I'm going to replace you. It isn't all about you. So he corrects his Messiah complex. And then number eight, Elijah is like Job and Jonah in significant ways. Everything that he's done in this story is like Job. If you remember in Job chapter 3, when Job feels that he is treated unfairly or unjustly, in Job chapter 3, after all the tragedies in Job 1 and 2, he spends a whole chapter, Job 3, to lament and say, God, I wish I had never been born. This is very similar. Why? Like Job, here's what Elijah thinks. God is unfair in how he's treating me. I deserve better. That's the implication of this, I think. God, I deserve better. So I'm having a pity party and I'm going to quit. I'm going to give up. Number two, Elijah is very much like Jonah. When God called Jonah to do something that Jonah didn't want, what did Jonah do? He ran in the opposite direction. And the book of Jonah ends with Jonah sitting under a tree having a pity party. Why? What's the same thing? Well, here's Elijah running in the opposite direction, sitting under a juniper bush. But why does he do this? Because God is unjust in how he's not treating others. They deserve worse, God. Why aren't you wiping them out? I've been zealous. They have not been. This isn't going according to plan. I deserve better. They deserve worse. And Elijah's got a Messiah complex. Let me give you five characteristics of a Messiah complex that you can see about him in this story. Number one, he's self-centered. Self-centeredness. I, I alone have been zealous. It's about me. I'm the only one that's left. Self-centeredness. Number two, self-importance. Self-importance. He finally had to admit, I am not better than others. Because before, what did he think? I am better than others. Self-importance, right? Number two. Number three, self-reliance. Self-reliance. He was doing all of this in the power of his own flesh. Self-reliance. Reliance. He didn't pray about it. He wasn't spending time in God's Word about it. Number four, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. I am the only one who has been faithful. And yet, what do we know? We know that Obadiah has been faithful. What was Obadiah's name? Servant of Yahweh. Later, we're going to learn about another prophet by the name of Micaiah who confronts Ahab and 400 prophets. Micaiah's name is, who is like Yahweh? My point is this. Elijah says, I'm the only one. Elijah's name's Yahweh is my God. 
But the reality is, God has a remnant that's being faithful. So here's what I'm going to say to you. We live in times of apostasy now, and it's going to get worse. And it's going to feel at times like you're the only one being faithful. You're the only one living for the Lord. And you need to understand that God always has a remnant that is around. At college, at work, in the community, in your family, God is at work in other loyal servants. And I'm telling you, it's very easy to have. Instead of calling it a Messiah complex, in my life, I call it the Elijah complex. I'm the only one around here that really loves you. I'm the only one that's in the Word. Seems like nobody's in the Word. I'm the only one that's trying. Elijah complex. Self-righteousness. And number five, all that self-centeredness leads to number five, self-pity. Self-pity. Because here's the thing. When you try to live with the Messiah complex and you try to live with the Elijah complex that ah, it's me and it's just me and you start isolating yourself, you end a broken, depressed, discouraged person. And you'll end up, instead of being very zealous for the Lord, you're going to end up being very disobedient to the Lord. And you won't know how you got there because it'll just be like that. Man, there's a lot here. Okay? Now, that's enough is enough. How does God respond? He's also a character in this. Look at number four. Yahweh, which by the way, Yahweh, the name the Lord, Yahweh means promise keeper. Yahweh, the promise keeper, remains loyal to his remnant. Isn't that good news that when you feel like you're all alone... When you feel like you're the only one, when you get depressed, when you get discouraged, even when, listen to me, even when you are disobedient, the Lord remains loyal. Can we shout hallelujah? Isn't that good? I mean, He is gracious. He is gracious. So let's take a look at it. Now, this is just a, a, a three-point overview of what, how the Lord responds in verse 5. Because he begins in verse 5. 5 through 18 is really the Lord's response. And I just want to give you this outline because I think it's very cool. A provision of love in the wilderness. God is loving to Elijah. I would thump him on the head. I would tell him, Elijah, man up. Get back in there. But what does the Lord do? Gives him a little food, gives him a little water, lets him rest a little bit. And then he comes back and he does it again. He provides a table in the wilderness. Is that not cool? And that's what he needed. That's what he needed. So sometimes when people need a kick in the pants and they need a kick in the pants, it's better not to kick them in the pants. Now, all the mercy showers are saying, that's obvious. Why are you saying that? Because we're not all mercy showers here. God didn't make us all that way. And mercy showers, there's a time for a kick in the pants. Can I hear an amen, mercy showers? Yeah, someone else do it, right? I know how that works. But he needed a kick in the pants. But sometimes an act of kindness is the kick in the pants that they need. With me? Table of provision in the wilderness. The second thing that the Lord does, 
is a revelation of faith on the mountain. So he gives him a provision of love in the wilderness, and then he takes him up on the mountain, and he gives him a revelation of faith. How cool is that? And here's what's radical about that. Is this is the same cave and the same mountain that Moses. So you got the same mountain and some cave here, okay? And in Exodus 19, it was Moses. And now in First uh, Kings 19, it's Elijah, right? And here's what's interesting. In both times, in Exodus 19, Israel has broken the covenant, right? Ten Commandments. And here, in 1 Kings 19, Samaria has broken the covenant. But here's what's interesting. Moses gets a revelation of the Lord. Elijah gets a revelation of the Lord. But in Moses, the revelation is fire and thunder and lightning, and the Lord speaks out of that. Here, the Lord doesn't speak in that stuff. He just gets his attention, and then it's a still, small voice. Here's what's interesting, too, and I have the chart there. On Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and, 32, and also 32, he's an advocate for Israel. Moses is saying, don't torch him. Elijah is an accuser of Israel. They aren't worthy of you or me. Second of all, Moses intercedes for them. Elijah is interceding against them. Moses is saying, forgive them. And Elijah makes no request. Elijah just says, I'm, I'm accusing them, and they're worthy of judgment. What's interesting is Moses seeks grace without justice. Back in this time, he says, look, Lord, if you wipe them out, if you don't forgive them, then you blot me out of your book. And God says, that's not for you to decide. I decide. Grace, he wanted grace without judgment. But here, Elijah is seeking justice without any grace. You see the contrast of what's going on? I think that's cool. So, third thing that the Lord does for him is that he gives him a mission of hope for the future. He says, Elijah, I know you want to quit, but you're not done yet. And he gives him a mission is given I've got three new leaders. You say you're, you're the only one. Well, guess what? I use who I want, when I want, how I want. I've got three other people that are going to do the work. Number two, he gives a prediction is made. And the prediction is, you want judgment? Judgment will come, but it won't come until I show more grace. God is long-suffering. He says, the judgment you're seeking will one day come. But understand... I am a God who loves to show mercy. And then number three, a provision is provided. The last thing we get is in verse 18. Well, let's read 17 so you can see that the judgment comes. Verse 17, It shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu, shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elijah, shall put to death. There is coming judgment. But it's not yet, because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But then he says this, sounds like a lot of death, but verse 18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not yet bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
meaning a ritual of false worship. Here's what he's saying. He said, look, there is a provision. Just like I've provided for you, I am providing for 7,000 in the remnant. So let me give you lessons to learn from this. What does that mean for me? Well, here's what I want you to understand. When you've had enough, God's grace is more than enough. When you have had enough, God's grace is more than enough. Is that not beautiful? Enough! Guess what? God's grace is more than enough. Enough! God's grace is more than enough. So, here's nine. I think it's nine. Is it nine? Yeah. So, it's just going back through the story, and how does this apply to you? Well, here it is. When you've had enough, number one, the Lord sends us His Son to meet us where we are. I don't know where you are, and you're enough, but you're not, a, you're not in a place that God doesn't know where you are. And I think it's really interesting that God sent His Son, pre-incarnate, angel of the Lord, in the wilderness where Elijah shouldn't be, and he touched him. He, t- he didn't call to him from heaven. He came down, and Jesus has come down and identified with us in our disobedience, and he has come to be one of us. Isn't that good news? He will meet you where you are. Number two, when you've had enough, God's grace is more than enough because the Lord nourishes us with providential provision. He nourishes you physically and spiritually. God provided him what he needed physically, but in that physical provision was a spiritual encouragement. Have you been there? Man, I, I was, I'll, I'll just share you this story. Man, I, Gwen was going through a depression, and we were just in the pit. I mean, we were just as low as, as we have ever been. And I don't want to ever go lower. And yet in the midst of that, the little providential provisions, God brought at least, I haven't counted, at least five of our missionary friends through Kansas City during that time. Not They weren't speaking at our church, just five, I mean, they would just come. They would just come. They would just come. It was like, oh, okay. We're not alone in this. And then one time, Todd and Kim had a really low time. And they only did this once. I don't know why they didn't bring more meals. They only brought one. But they brought one meal on one night. And I can tell you exactly where I stood. And it was just like, okay, one more night. I can do this one more night. And just had all the little extras in it. And it was it wasn't about the, it was about God saying, "Rise up and eat, for your journey is more than you can bear." Are you with me? This is what God and I learned in those two years that God it's the little things that you start hanging. It's the song that comes on the radio. It's the meal that comes unexpectedly. It's the longtime friends that you count on that show up. And it is God nourishing you physically and spiritually when you have had enough. Number three, 
The Lord gives us rest. He allowed him to sleep. And there's all sorts of... Go through the Psalms sometime and just study sleep. Because God gives to his saints sleep. And we need to get sleep. You young people, sorry you're here today. I get to teach to you. Get your sleep. Get off the media. Get off the technology and schedule rest physically and spiritually. You say, well, my Bible's on my phone. Well, quit that. Get a real Bible. Okay? Do a Bible here so that you can rest. Are you with me? Any parents saying amen? All right. Enough of that. Number four, the Lord shows us mercy. He shows us mercy. Here's what's beautiful in this whole story. This powerful God that's wind, fire, and earthquake is speaking in what? A still small voice. Not, there's not a rebuke in this whole story. Is that amazing? And yet the whole story is a rebuke. In the, at, the, at the end of the day, what does he tell Elijah to do? Get back there. But he doesn't do it that way. He shows mercy. 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 Number five. When you've had enough, His grace is more than enough because the Lord rebukes us in love with searching questions. The Lord rebukes us in love with searching questions. The way He rebukes Elijah in this story is by the kind of question, what are you doing here? He's not saying to him, you lunkhead, get back up. You know, he, he's, he's, not, he's not talking like we talk to one another. He's saying, Why, what are you doing here? You ever had someone ask you a searching question and they just ask you the question and they just leave it there and yet God convicts the tar out of you with that question? I, had a, I was sitting with Sam Chang one time, years, this was years ago, and I was so disappointed and uh, somebody wasn't loving me and treating me the way I thought they should. And after listening to me, Sam said, why do you need them to love you? Ah, good question. I don't. I have all the love I need from the Lord. I can let go that expectation. Are you with me? Number six, the Lord reveals to us our greatest need. Do you know what he needed more than food? More than judgment, more than, you know, you know what he needed? He needed a revelation of God. That's our greatest need. And so here's what, what, here's what the Lord does. He says, look, Elijah, you're into fire and rain and wind and earthquake, but that's not what you need. What you need is my still, small voice speaking to you. You need to hear from me. That's your greatest need. And when Elijah went out and listened to the Lord, that's when Elijah got back on track. So maybe right now the Lord is earthquaking your life. Maybe the Lord is turning things upside down and you're not seeing the Lord in those things. But what he's wanting you to do is to get into this book and listen to him. Listen to him. Is that good? I hope this is good. I've enjoyed it. Number seven, the Lord reminds us of his sovereign ways. I think this is hilarious. Lord, I'm the only one that's zealous. Well, guess what? I'm going to use an unsaved king 
And I'm going to use Jehu, a crazy chariot driver. We'll learn about him. And I'm going to, I'm going to replace you, since you want to quit, with Elijah. God's sovereign. And he'll use who he wants, when he wants, in the way he wants. That kind of cut that Messiah complex right there. Number eight, the Lord calls us to repent by his grace. I love this. Verse 15, the Lord said, go, return on your way. way the word for way is the same for journey. The journey that was too much for him, God's grace is more than enough. And he says, get back on that journey and get back to where I want you to be. And then finally, number nine, the Lord offers us hope. In his unfailing, loyal love. Verse 18, a remnant will be saved. So here's my question to you. Are you part of the loyal remnant? I'm not asking if you made a decision when you were young. I'm not asking if you believe in Jesus. I'm asking, are you a part of the loyal remnant in these disloyal times? And you say, well... I don't know if I'm worthy. Here's the answer to that. You're not. He is. You say, I don't know if I have it in me. You don't. But He does. Isn't that good? Listen, when you've had enough, God's grace is more than enough. And that's what we learn in 1 Kings 19. All right? So take those nine things. You may not need them right now, but you will need them. Okay? And you remember how God will work in your life. So, all right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that, man, you take us through some difficult times, and yet your grace is more than enough. Lord, we live in increasingly difficult times, but your grace is more than enough. And Lord, sometimes we are self-centered and self-righteous, but your grace is more than enough. Lord, let us take heart from Elijah. He had a nature like ours. We too can get a Elijah complex. But Lord, Elijah's God is our God, and your grace got him back to where he needed to be, and your grace can do that for us. So I pray that we leave here worshiping your, your glory, committed to getting back into your word this summer. Lord, let us not forsake your word this summer, and let us not forsake praying, as we're going to hear about upstairs. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, read, a lot, read 1 Kings 19 if you haven't. I think you would find much there that we'd even touch on.